The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon text for today comes from Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let us go to the Lord and ask him for help. Our Father, we come before you and your holy scriptures with both reverence and joy, recalling the words of our Lord who said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We confess that we are in desperate need of your word, so hear our prayer and feed us with your living word until we are satisfied fully. Open your words so that we may see Jesus, the bread of life, and feast upon him. Amen. Throughout the course of human history, there have been men and women who have sought or attempted to seek immortality, a life without aging, pain, or suffering that lasts forever. And history tells us that those men and women failed in their pursuits. And yet they sought for them, whether it was a fountain of youth or an elixir of life. For example, about 500 years ago, a Spanish explorer by the name of Ponce de Leon traversed the miles of palm trees and mangroves and swamps in Florida, seeking a fountain of youth. Unsurprisingly, he never found it. Or 200 years before Christ, a Chinese emperor by the name of Shi Huangdi dramatically declared that he was going to find an elixir of life. So he took extremes by sending all his men from his government across his realm in China into Japan looking for this elixir of life. His Confucian scholars opposed him and said, such a thing does not exist, emperor. He was so upset by that that on the spot he ordered the mass execution of 460 Confucian scholars. 
He went to extreme means to find what he thought would be his ticket to immortality. Even in the present, there are companies that promise and guarantee immortality. The CEO of Alcor, an Arizona-based company, was interviewed a few months ago. And this company practices a technique called cryopreservation of the human body. He claimed in a recent interview, quote, death is not compulsory, it is optional, end quote. His company's cryopreservation of the body with a $200,000 fee, he asserts in that interview that he and his company will give new life and allow people to cancel death, as he put it, indefinitely. Sadly, Shi Huangdi, Ponce de Leon, and others in history have died without experiencing true satisfaction that's only found in God himself. They thought that a potion or a pill or a fountain would give them eternal life, but they were gravely and eternally mistaken. In stark contrast with their misplaced trust in immortality, Moses' prayer here in our text this morning, Psalm 90, offers us the source of eternal life, God himself, not in a fountain of youth, not in a potion of life, but in the eternal God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. The psalm is the final one in our summer series on the psalms. And as we look at a 90th psalm this morning, Moses' prayer demonstrates for us that true satisfaction is found not in this temporary, fragile, broken life, but in God himself and eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. So the main point of Psalm 90 is this. Because of the brevity and fallenness of life, hope in the eternal God as your refuge and find ultimate satisfaction in him alone. Because of the brevity and the fullness of this life, hope in God alone as your refuge and find ultimate satisfaction and joy in him. In short, we could put it this way. God is eternal and you are not. God is forever and we are not. The message of the psalm when it was composed years ago, thousands of years ago, was one of assurance and strengthening of the faith of the congregation of Israel as it reflected in their past history, God's covenant promises, his steadfast covenant love to his people during the years of wandering in the wilderness and throughout Israel's long history. So my aim this morning is to lead us in this text and to see that only God will bring you and bring me true to satisfaction and that eternal life is found only in him. Moses' prayer reminds us this morning that our life here on this earth is very temporary and fragile. We are not to place our hope in this temporary life, but in God himself, who is our salvation and our only hope in life and in death. This prayer is arranged in two main sections. If you look at your text with me, verses 1 through 11, we see in section 1 that God is eternal. God is eternal. And then the second section of this prayer, verses 12 through 17, Moses offers to the Lord eight petitions in response to God's timelessness and sovereignty. And we'll move through each of these sections and we'll see that the eight petitions at the end are a response from his heart in light of the fullness of man, in light of God being eternal. Here are eight petitions to offer to the Lord. I believe that we congregationally today, even 3,500 years later after this prayer was composed, we can offer to the Lord as well. Let us first consider the psalm's context. Look with me at the title. 
a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the only psalm of the 150 psalms in our Psalter that was recorded by Moses. Moses lived in the, around the 15th century B.C., and most of the other psalms by David, Asaph, Solomon, were composed in the 10th century B.C., so about 400 years span. So the historical context is not specified here in the title or even in the psalm itself, but it may have been composed and prayed during the time of the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. I think based upon verses 8 through 9, which we'll look at later, we get maybe a hint of the wilderness wanderings and the pain of that uh, wandering and, and the suffering in that moment. The setting of this psalm is indicated by the title as well. This is a prayer. That's a genre of this psalm. It's a prayer. Indeed, it's addressed to the Lord at the very beginning. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And even though the term Lord is only used twice, the pronoun you, addressing Lord, is repeatedly used 23 times. So clearly this is a prayer of heartfelt passion to the Lord. So this is a corporate psalm prayer. It's not just an individual soul prayer of Moses. This is a prayer that is representing the congregation of Israel as a psalm prayer to be congregationally sung and used even 400 years later in the Davidic Solomonic kingdom. This will be akin to us singing the old hymns such as Martin Luther's day about 400, 500 years ago. Mighty fortresses are God. So same type of equivalent there. Further, Moses' prayer is deeply philosophical as you probably noticed in the scripture reading. It probes the hard questions of life, death, and suffering in this earth. Moses even makes consistent references, you may have noticed, to time, Days, years, morning, evening, repeated references are integrated all throughout the psalm in order to point to God, the author of time, the one who transcends time. Moses' prayer throughout, beginning to end, affirms that God is eternal. So let's look at verse 1 as we look at this section of God being eternal. And you're going to see in this section not only God is eternal, but humans are temporary, as well as God's wrath, God's hatred for sin. Look with me as I read verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses begins his prayer with acknowledgement that God has been the refuge for his covenant people throughout all generations. His covenant people's Israel. This opening is strikingly similar to Moses's prayer of blessing upon Israel in Deuteronomy 33, 27. It's almost identical. Listen to these words. The eternal God, the eternal God is your dwelling place. Same exact word as used here, or refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Here in Psalm 90, Moses was reflecting upon the history of Israel as a nation during the past 600 years since Abraham. Remember all the way back in Genesis 12 where God makes a big promise to Abraham? Listen to Genesis 12, 3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's significant because it's speaking of the promised seed of Abraham, the Messiah. Jesus, by extension, disciples of Jesus, you and me, received the blessing of salvation through Jesus alone. And the Lord was not only the refuge for national Israel, as Moses demonstrated here in this prayer, but he is the refuge for his people of all generations. By application extension, the blessing of the Lord being our refuge is applied to us today, corporately, so that we can say along with Moses, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. 
This is not just a national Israel prayer. This can be a prayer applied to God's people of all time. And history indeed reveals that God has been and continues to be a refuge to his people because God always keeps his promises. In verse 2, we see a glimpse from Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Remember for Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see that count played out all throughout Genesis 1. God, declares Moses, is the creator before his creation. He existed before the mighty mountains. He existed before the earth and oceans because he created them. And Moses uses then this phrase to accent the point that he is the creator. Notice the phrase everlasting to everlasting. Question, how long is everlasting to everlasting? Forever, right? Simply put, God has no beginning and no end. God is eternal. God's creation, including us, has a beginning and has a finish. God, however, is uncreated and has no beginning and no end. God knows, he knows no bounds. We are bound by time and age. We don't understand that, but he is not bound. I don't know about you, but this is mind-blowing. At the dinner table the other night, we had a conversation as a family trying to think about how to think about what something looks like with no beginning and no ending. And at the end of the conversation, we decided we could not fathom that. We couldn't comprehend that. And I told my children, join the thousands of theologians throughout history who are also scratching their heads and perplexed with the idea that God is eternal. There's no beginning and no ending. And yet, that should be a balm to our souls, is it not? That God is from everlasting to everlasting. That's the God that loves you. That's the God whom you serve. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by change like we are. We don't alter, or, or God does not alter. We alter, we are fickle, we change. And yet God does not because he is eternal. So within this context of God's eternity, we look at verses three and four, which offers us now a contrast in Moses' prayer, which this prayer is constantly about shifting back and forth to show the contrast between God and between us. Follow along as I read verses three and four. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So verse three offers a stark contrast from the end of verse two. Look at the end of verse two again. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay, no beginning, no end. And then look at verse, the very first line of verse three. What does it say? You return man to dust. Man's life here on this earth clearly has an ending as in stark contrast to God's unendingness. This phrase, you return man to dust, should immediately take us back to where in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. Genesis 3. You've seen a, a pattern here. There are glimpses and echoes of Genesis throughout Psalm 90 here. And by the way, who composed humanly the book of Genesis? Moses. So Moses here is offering various things that come directly, I believe, from the book of Genesis. Garden of Eden language. Genesis 3.19. God told Adam and Eve after they had sinned by taking the forbidden fruit these words. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Same exact language going on here. Remember, Moses wrote these words, and I can't help to think that Moses was reflecting upon the curse of sin in the account of Adam and Eve when he prayed this, to acknowledge and confess to the Lord that he and Israel and all God's people of all time are fallen 
and we're in desperate need of someone who's not fallen, and that is God himself. Verse 4 affirms that God is not limited by time as we are. Look at verse 4 again. For a thousand years in our sight are but as yesterday when it has passed, or as on watch in the night. You see two metaphors right there? Moses offers two chronological examples or metaphors to illustrate God's transcendence over time. First, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it has passed. The Apostle Peter later on in the Bible, 2 Peter 3.8, directly quotes Moses here. Let me read 2 Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as, as, is as one day. Now for us, a thousand years is a very long time ago. If we think back to our history class and go back 1,000 years ago in history today, which will be in the year what? Do a little bit of math here. 1022. Sounds like a long time ago, right? 1020. What was happening in the year 1022? I'll tell you at least two things were happening in 1022. Number one, the Vikings, not the Minnesota ones, uh, had just discovered Greenland and Newfoundland. Okay? That's 1,000 years ago. The other thing, big thing that was happening is Europe was getting ready for this big battle against the Middle East called the Crusades. That was just about to happen 1,000 years ago. Now, when you put it in that context, we think, whoa, that's a long time ago, and it is from our human capacity. But what does God say about 1,000 years? Look at, look at your Bibles again. There was but as yesterday. That's mind-blowing, especially those of us who love history and think about years. This is mind-blowing. It's nothing for God. And then a second example is also astounding, where Moses uses a phrase, as a watch in the night. What does that mean? In the Old Testament period of Israel, there were three watches in the night for a total of 12 hours, each watch being four hours. So God is saying here that 1,000 years is like four hours to him. Again, that's, that's mind-boggling. Now, the point of these examples is not to give a precise equation of years equals time, but the, this is to prove that God is eternal, to give us a little bit of a picture of history to show us that we are not eternal. We are finite. We are small compared to our big God. And that is always a good thing to reflect upon, is it not? That we are small and minute and finite compared to the infinite, eternal God. Well, the next section of this first section begins in verse 5 as we move on to this continued contrast of the eternality of God and the fragility of humans. Look with me at verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. In this section, Moses' prayer, there's a stark contrast between God's eternality and man's fragility and weakness. In verses 5 and 6 that I just read, Moses uses three metaphors. Did you notice them in the reading? Where are they? Flood, dream, and grass. Each of them convey the fragility and the brevity of life. Floods sweep everything in its path, don't they? I saw images this past summer of floods in Wyoming sweeping houses away. Maybe some of you did too. And the power, destruction of floods is a picture here of life is like that. It just, it's there one moment and it just flows away in the flood. Dreams are brief and usually forgotten. Grass has a relatively short lifespan, especially in Minnesota. And these things are fragile. They can get easily trampled upon, grass can. And our bodies decay just like that and eventually die, like the grass at the end of the day. 
The COVID-19 pandemic in the last couple of years has been an avid reminder for all of us that we are weak, fragile, and frail. We are not invincible. I think that's one thing COVID-19 has taught us in the world, that we are not invincible. In fact, the Bible frequently compares us to worms and grass repeatedly, whether it's Isaiah or 1 Peter or Job. It's a humbling reality. The curse of sin has permeated all of creation, including us. The curse of sin has wreaked havoc on our physical bodies and our physical world. And not only that, our spiritual domain as well. The curse of sin reminds us that we are in desperate need of a Savior, of a God who can and will save us if we call upon him in faith. Then verses 7 through 8, Moses acknowledges God's wrath against sin, which is part of the curse. This is part of the Genesis rhetoric going on here. Follow with me as I read verses 7 through 8. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. Moses uses here two pairs of Hebrew parallelism, that's a technique in Hebrew poetry, that the second line reiterates the first line, with the main point of verse 7 being that God's anger consumes and terrifies, as the word dismayed means, literally terrifies sinners. There might be a specific sin or event that Moses may have in mind, but it's not specified here. Could Moses be referring to the sin of Israel in Exodus 32, which was the worship of the golden calf? Perhaps. Not okay here. Or could this be the sin in the wilderness in which the people complained, complained, complained about the manna that God had provided for them? Or could this be another event that's just not dictated here by Moses? We're not sure. Moses could have had this in view, but we're not sure. Whether a specific event is in view here or not, the timeless message for us today is this. God hates sin, and his holy character demands that all sin be punished and paid for. Because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, God's wrath was unleashed upon sin, and the curse permeated and affected all of human life, spiritually and physically. Life is now brief and involves suffering and death because of sin. And everywhere we turn in this world, we see that. And verse 8 offers a sober warning that the sins we think and commit in secret are known to God. May this be an exhortation to you and to me this morning that if we are hiding any sin secretly, God knows. It's exhortation to repent from public as well as secretly committed sins. So thus far, as we consider the wrath of God, in this section here, Psalm 90 reminds us of this truth that all sinners without Jesus Christ receive the wrath of God. All sinners do, no exceptions. God's wrath against sin reminds us that we are all sinners and justly deserve judgment for our sins. God's wrath also reminds us that Jesus bore the brunt of God's wrath. He drank the cup for those who believe in Jesus. As the Puritan Thomas Watson put it years ago, Jesus leaped into the sea of his father's wrath to save you from drowning. That's exactly what Jesus did. He took all the wrath that belongs to you if you believe in Jesus and took it upon himself, Jesus Christ. But God, who is rich in mercy, Paul says, made us alive through his son, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, the wrath of God remains on sinners, Jesus said himself in John 3. Well, the prayer then, in verse 9, returns back to the premise that life on this earth is temporary. Look with me at verse, verses 9 through 11. For all our days, Moses says, pass away under your wrath. 
We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to fear of you? Verse 9 continues the theme of God's wrath towards sin and reiterates that life on this earth is temporary. Sin always brings God's wrath and death. The curse of sin that brought brings a short lifespan on earth and physical death. So again, look at verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. I think there are two reasons here why Moses includes specific numbers for our human lifespan, 70 and 80. Number one, to emphasize the brevity of one's life, 70, 80 is really not that many. We'll talk about that in a moment. And number two, to stress that God appoints, sovereignly appoints, and designates and determines your precise years. Firstly, the point of 78 is to emphasize the brevity of it. Look back with me at verse four. Take your Bible and look at verse four. Notice where he says, for a thousand years in your sight or it was but yesterday when it has passed, okay? And then now we go back to verse 10. The years of our life are 70. Think about this logically here. If 1,000 years are like four hours to God's sight, then how much is 70 or 80 years to God? A few seconds probably, a couple minutes. I didn't do a precise mathematical calculation, but very, very short in God's eyes. Secondly, God determines and designates your appointed life, your birth date and the day that you die. That's determined by God, not by you. There's no canceling of death. There's no pausing of death. Death is a reality. And Moses asserts this over and over again in his prayer, and the Bible does the same thing. And in this moment, we see the phrase toil and trouble. Again, look at verse 10. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. In this short lifespan, there is toil and trouble. Why? Once again, he brings us another vignette of Genesis 3. You cannot get away from Genesis 3 in this psalm. And again, Genesis 3 reminds us of the toil and trouble as a reminder that life has the scars of the curse of sin because of Adam and Eve. Remember what God said to Eve, Genesis 3.16? I will surely multiply your pain. That's toil and trouble. Your pain in childbearing. To Adam in verse 17 of Genesis 3, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The toil and trouble of this life on earth is yet another reminder that sin always brings pain and will always bring death, physical and spiritual. But the Apostle Paul later in the Bible instructs us something that I think is helpful for us today. God uses the suffering and death and pain in this life for good to conform us to the image of his son, Romans 8. There's a reversal of death, which we'll explore in just a moment. But now, for now, time is fleeting and life is brief. And the word of God repeatedly reminds us of, of, of this reality. And that's a good thing to be reminded that this life is fragile, weak, and temporary. And that God, as the author of time, has appointed and designated your precise years from your birth to your, to your death. Brothers and sisters, you and I need deliverance from the curse of sin and eternal death. The Bible declares that there is a deliverer, capital D, he who is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. His name is Jesus. And Jesus has conquered death. He has reversed death by his own death and resurrection. Death does not have the last day. Oh, death, where is thy sting? 
Where is thy victory? Jesus has completely removed the sting of death. He has obliterated and crushed the jaws of death. Our physical life in this world may be brief, but the Bible teaches us that our souls will live forever. And for those of us who have eternal life, it's found in God's Son, Jesus Christ, who promised us, us in John 14, a home, an abode, a dwelling place with him in heaven. While God is our dwelling place here in this earth, he has provided for us a dwelling place in heaven. With these first 11 verses, Moses responds with eight practical petitions. We've seen verses 1 through 11, the permeation of sin, the eternality of God, and now Moses offers eight practical petitions that are prayed by God's people of all time, and I believe we can pray them today. So briefly for, eight, for each of these eight petitions, Number one, teach us to number our days. Look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In light of the brevity and the fragility of life, Moses asked the Lord for instruction, for wisdom in numbering his and God's people's days. So how practically do we number our own days? In light of the reminder in verse 10 that our years are short and God sees our life as a mere sigh in verse 9, You and I desperately need God's wisdom to take a careful account of our day, our days, our years. Life is too short to waste our time and to not live for the Lord. Don't live for the moment. Seek rather God and his wisdom each and every day of your life, no matter how long your life is, how short it is. Second petition, return. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? God instructs man in verse 3. Look back at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. The word return there is the same word that's being used here. And notice the reversal. In verse 3, God is ordering man to return to the ground where he came from. But here Moses says, God, return to us in mercy and salvation. What a beautiful reversal. And how do we receive that return or that call for mercy through the death of his son, Jesus Christ? Notice the phrase, how long? This phrase is a key one in the Psalms, 20 times at least. Moses is asking, how long? I think the question here is, how long will we continue in this sin-cursed world? How long will we have to endure suffering due to sin? How long will it last? So Lord, return so that there's no more suffering. Abide with us, dwell with us so that sin is put, completely obliterated and put away. Petition number three, verse 13, second part. Have pity on your servants. This is a plea for mercy because God alone is a source of mercy. So Moses and the people are going to the right source and so should we. You and I are totally reliant upon God's mercy every single day. Lord, have mercy should be a daily prayer for all of us as we wake up in the morning. Do you realize how much you need God's mercy? There go I, there go you, but by the grace of God. Petition four, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Only God and his steadfast love can bring us ultimate satisfaction and joy. Notice the term steadfast love, which is a key term in Old Testament where it speaks of God's covenant Faithful, never giving up, never breaking, eternal love to his people. Know the progression here in this verse. 
you see the reference here to satisfaction. And at what, what is produced from the satisfaction? The second part, joy and gladness. As you are being satisfied in God, joy and gladness is being produced and exuding from you. And it shows in your countenance. It shows in your speech. It shows in your actions. It shows in your trust and delight in God. So God, satisfy us, Moses said, and give us true joy because of your steadfast love. And notice also one last thing in verse 14. Notice the phrase that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This is in stark contrast to verse 9. Look at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Again, the great reversal from wrath due to the curse of sin and now the request for all our days to be full of joy and gladness as we are satisfied in God. Petition number five, make us glad. In verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. This could be a possible reference to the 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness. Not specified, but it's possible. This verse is not teaching that God is the author of evil. The Bible says clearly that God does not invent or create evil. The Bible teaches, though, that God allows suffering in our lives for his good, glorious purposes and for our joy. And that's countercultural, is it not? Where in our culture we think suffering, pain, bad. And yet God says throughout his word it's for our glory and joy. The point here of Moses' petition is that God would give joy in spite of affliction, in spite of the sorrows in this life. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 makes this point that there is such a thing as in the Christian experience as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's right to lament in this world. It's right to weep and to mourn. But in that lamentation there is always joy and hope for the Christian in the Lord that he alone gives to us. Our ultimate joy and gladness then is in God, not in the things of this fleeting earth, not in the passing possessions, humans, events, fountain of views that can only bring temporary gladness. Nothing can bring gladness but God himself through Jesus Christ. Number six of the petitions. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants. Notice verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to who? Their children. Notice the reference to generations again. Even the word generations I hear, the word children reiterates what we saw in verse one, generations. I think the connection there is pretty clear. There's a desire on the part of Moses and all the congregation to see the works of the Lord and to make sure that various generations see that too. That's one of the burdens that God had for his people in the Pentateuch, particularly in Deuteronomy. Tell them to your children. Teach them. Remind them. Tell them the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remind them. Parents, a word for you. Your desire should likewise be for God's works to display to your children, to your household, and say, here are the works of God. Those who have grandchildren, likewise, should do the same thing. Children's ministry is a practical way to proclaim God's work to the next generation. We're on the season of beginning children's ministry, and this is a good time to, to advocate and endorse the children's ministry here. So partner with that ministry. By the way, Pastor Aaron didn't pay me to say that, but I'm going to encourage you to, to pray about that and to invest in that because when you do that work, you're doing Psalm 9016 work. You're pointing the next generations to God and you're proclaiming his good works so that they believe and are fully satisfied in God himself. And finally, in verse 17, we see two more petitions. First of all, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. You see that phrase, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us? Some translations say, let the beauty of the Lord God be upon us. 
Again, we are reminded that we're, we're, we're in dire need of God's kindness. So another way to think of favor and beauty here. God's kindness and his beautiful goodness. We need God's face to shine upon us every single day and we cannot live apart from God. And the eighth petition, the final one, is this. Establish the work of your hands. Notice that he says that twice. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think repetition indicates a sincere, desperate plea. It's also a recognition of the fact that the labor of our hands is futile without God's blessing. It reminds me of another psalm, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. So brothers and sisters, unless the Lord guides you and blesses you in your work this week, your business, your homework, your finances, your marriage, your study, you do it in vain. But when the Lord blesses it and causes it to prosper, our labor will not be in vain. It will be fruitful in the Lord. I want to draw three points of application in closing from Moses' prayer. Number one, because life is brief, faithfully store your days and time for the name of Christ. Because our lives are brief, faithfully store your days, number your days and time for the name of Christ. Teach us to number our days. Establish the work of our hands. These should be our daily prayers to the Lord. These are prayers of faithful Christian stewardship. God has given you a designated number of days. You don't know that. I don't know that. Use those days in worship of your creator. Children and young people, some of you think you're invincible and that you'll live a long time. You know, your days are designated by God, but you might think in your invincibility, I'll serve God later in life. I'll repent later. Solomon Ecclesiastes has a word for you. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. I want to exhort you to do the same thing on the basis of the authority of the word of God. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. So repent and follow Jesus now in your youth. Serve God now. Be involved in your church now. Some of you are advancing in years here and are realizing that you may not have many years left. But Psalm 90 is also for you as well. In your aging, in your life, the later days of your life perhaps, ask God to give you a heart of wisdom and faithfully living each day in faithful stewardship, faithful plotting every single day in honor and glory to God. Establish the work of our hands is a prayer that we should ask the Lord whether it's physical labor work with our hands or with our minds. Whether we're in front of a computer all day doing spreadsheets or we're with our clients, patients, or students. You need the Lord to bless you and prosper your labor and establish the work of your hands. You cannot do it yourself. For you students who begin school very soon, some of you in a couple weeks, some of you even tomorrow. I know that because I'm teaching several of you seminarians tomorrow in my classroom. So the word is this. Ask the Lord to establish the work of your hands and your minds this semester, this week as you begin a new school year. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not amen. Colossians 3. Be faithful in your stewardship of time. Be faithful each day in the work that God has given you. That's number one. Because life is brief, faithfully store your days. Number two, find your satisfaction in God alone in this life. Why should you do this? There are infinite number of reasons why you should be satisfied in God. But look at this psalm as a, as a test case. You should do it because of verse one. 
He is your only refuge. Therefore, be satisfied in him. Because of verse 2, he is everlasting to everlasting. So therefore, be satisfied in him. Because of 14, the steadfast love of God. And because of verse 17, the favor, the kindness of the Lord. Infinite number of reasons, but these are reasons enough that we should direct our focus and our passion and our affections upon God alone. Only God can give you deep satisfaction and joy in this life like no other. Back about 200 years ago, 250 years ago, was a woman, a Baptist woman in England named Anne Steele. Anne Steele suffered much in her life, but found her satisfaction in God alone. A couple days before her wedding day, her fiancé tragically drowned, and she never was married after that because of the tragedy that just impacted her life. Around the same time, she also severely broke her hip and lived in chronic pain throughout the rest of her life. Now, Anne could have been bitter. She could have had a a self-pity party, but she did not. Instead, she managed her time, she stored her days of what she had, and she found satisfaction in God alone. And one of the things that God did in and through her is to compose several thousand hymns for the Baptist churches in England. And to this day, Anne Steele remains the most prolific Baptist hymn writer in history because she submitted to God's will and suffering and had her joy in God, and she wrote hymns such as Dear Refuge of Her Weary Soul, of which one line says this, To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. God did not allow Anne's suffering to be wasted, and neither will he allow you and your suffering to be wasted. He's going to use every single trial you are experiencing right now or you will experience in the future for his glory and for your joy. And thirdly, Jesus is our only hope in life and death. Jesus is our only hope in life and death. Psalm 90 ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible reminds us very clearly through Psalm 90 as well as Hebrews 9 that's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. Because Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected to save sinners from our sin and from eternal death, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, we have a living hope after death because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Hear these words from Jesus himself in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. We would invite you if you're not a Christian, to come to the one who has life. He offers it freely and he offers it without being stingy. That's Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ only and him alone can bring you eternal joy and satisfaction. For those of us who believe in Jesus, we still need Jesus as our only hope in life and death and suffering, don't we? So let me exhort you to run to Jesus as your eternal refuge. In this world, we need a refuge. Don't go to the world and the vanity and the toys and the trifles it offers. Go to God himself and trust his kind and wise providence even in loss, pain, and suffering. Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is my only hope in suffering. In hard seasons, you have a refuge for your weary soul, Jesus. Some of you know that our family has been and is currently in a particularly hard season due to ongoing health problems with my daughter. It has been a trying and taxing time, I'll be honest about that. 
And yet my wife, Johanna, and I want to testify to you that he is indeed good and wise in his providence. God has been and will be faithful to us. We have particular experience, verse 14 in this text. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all your days. We have been surrounded, upheld, and sustained by God's steadfast love, both by him and through the grace of this church and many of you. And we have felt God's presence and kindness. I can testify by God's grace that that trial has brought me a fresher view of God's goodness and presence. And that's a good and holy thing, I believe. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that God is always, always, always good. Even in your hardship or my hardship. You can and you must trust him because he is your refuge. He is the refuge of my family and he will be the refuge for, for you and your family as well. My prayer for myself during this difficult season and my prayer for you who are suffering and are in difficult season right now is that you will be satisfied with God's steadfast love because Jesus is your only hope in life and death. You might be in a hard place right now experiencing physical or emotional pain or a family member might be doing, going through that as well. But don't run away from God. I urge you, don't run away from God in, in bitterness and anger because he brought this upon you. Run to him instead because of his steadfast love and seek him for eternal refuge. That's where you should go. So brothers and sisters, true satisfaction is found not in this life but in the eternal God himself. And Jesus Christ who said himself in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There is a living bread who will eternally satisfy you forever. His name is Jesus. So Go to him alone as your dear refuge of your weary souls this morning. Whether you need to believe in him for salvation or you need to run to him because you are suffering. He is a loving God. His steadfast love is with you and he will never disappoint. Let's pray. We confess and praise you, Lord, that you are the dear refuge of our weary souls. We ask you to open our eyes that we may see how futile this life is and that we need you in every facet of our lives. So we ask you now, whether it is in life or in death, in success, in sorrow, in pleasure or in pain, O Lord, abide with us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.